All right, welcome back to Firewall. As usual, I'm your host, Bradley Tusk. As usual, it's a Tuesday episode, so with me is our friend and producer, Hugo Lindgren. What is not as usual is we're recording. I don't know if we're going to post this. Um, Normally, over the course of three or four days leading into the podcast recording, Hugo and I go back and forth on topics, issues, ideas, and I just didn't have it this weekend at all. Like Nothing interested me. Nothing felt sort of counterintuitive or profound, whatever Hugo sent, so I couldn't even get through. And so we may or may not post this. We decided to just record anyway and see what happens. Um, if you're hearing this, that means that we thought it was good enough, which you may decide is, is true or not true. Um, but the kind of first thing, Hugo, I want to talk about is like, do we always have to have something to say? You know, and I guess well, if you're in the podcast, podcast you business, do. I think the answer might be yes. Yeah. But but um, the question is, is whether the topic of not having something to say is something to say. So go ahead. Well, I mean, here, here's so we've talked before on the podcast uh, about the notion of people not having a responsibility to read the news, not having a responsibility to know what the current events are. I, I know the sort of conventional wisdom is, is the opposite. But to a certain extent, you know, you're living your life. You're worried about your job, your kids, your friends, your family, your struggles, everything else you're dealing with, and 99.99% of current events just have nothing to do with you. And they may indirectly impact you in some way or another, um, but but it's generally very indirect, and people would have a really hard time tying what they're reading in the newspaper back to a specific concrete thing in their own lives one way or another. And so it's the conclusion that I reached um, at, at some point was, no, you, you, you don't have to. And by the way, I don't think you even have to if you want to then vote, right? Like this notion that um, voters must be informed and only educated, intelligent people should vote, which is sort of what the kind of paper ballot world uh, argued for in the cybersecurity world and everyone else who sort of was told how smart and special they were but never really accomplished anything with their lives. Um, I, I, I don't buy that. I think it's totally fine um, to just focus on your own life and, and not worry about all the other shit swirling around you because you know what? 99% of the time, um, it, it it's overblown. And another 99% of the time, whether you pay attention or not, the problems are still going to be there. Well, let's talk about the 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 not the one big, but a big thing that happened this week, which was um, Biden announced his um, his plan to relieve uh, student debt up to $10,000 for a particular group of people who make under a certain amount of money. Um, it kind of lit up the political world as I think everything does these days. Uh, people calling him a, uh, well, I don't think anybody was really praising him to, 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 uh, to heaven because um, in the end, I don't think the left got all they wanted out of it. Um, but it, it's, it's a, it's a big amount of money. Yeah. And it's and it's a it's a difference maker in a lot of people's lives, and you are somewhat surprisingly to me anyway. You are um, fairly positive about about it. Well, it's this. I accept. I have two thoughts. One is it, it's not so much that I'm positive or negative on the specific policy choice, or I think it's going to be good for Democrats in November because I don't give a shit what's good for Democrats in November or good for Biden's numbers or anything else. I, I don't care. None of that is my problem. These people's ambitions and insecurities are not my responsibility. But um, I would say I believe strongly that, one, we have a system of capitalism democracy that delivers more good to more people than any other system in the history of humanity. And therefore, 
we should keep it, uh, fix it, but keep it. Number two, we have massive income inequality, both in this country and globally, and that money should get spread around, right? And there's no reason that even if we keep capitalism, I have to keep every penny that I make at, at the expense of other people. And so the notion of a wealth transfer to me has always made a lot of sense. But again, as someone who has spent a good chunk of their career you know, not like people say, oh, I'm interested in politics. They mean that they read Politico or go on the Times blog or maybe they knock on some doors for Obama or Biden. Like I worked in governments. I ran governments. And like I know firsthand that government is effective at some things and highly ineffective at others. And so the Elizabeth Warren notion of, hey, give up X percentage of your wealth every single year, pay it in the form of taxes and the government will do good things with it. That's nonsense too because 50% of that money gets frittered away into politics and waste and corruption and grift and everything else. So that's why I've always been really drawn to the notion of universal basic income because it is effectively a pure wealth transfer from people who have it to people who need it without the government in the middle of it sort of wasting it and deciding what they benefit them politically and what does not. Um, it's one of the main reasons why I backed Andrew Yang when he ran for mayor of New York City. Um, and I see the student loan cancellation in a form as a way of a wealth transfer because rather than uh, me paying higher taxes, the government deciding here are ways that we can use it that we think will make a policy difference based on whatever, what's in everyone's best political interest first and foremost, um, and then hoping that maybe it will be right. I know that if someone has 10000 less in student loans than they had the day before, their life is better. Their life is easier. Maybe they deserve it. Maybe they don't. Maybe they'll spend the money wisely on other things. Maybe they won't. I don't know. Um, it is not my job to try to predict or control what every single decision human beings make. That is not feasible. Um, but I do know that you are far better off if you're going to do a wealth transfer to deal with income inequality, giving people money directly and letting them decide how to best use it to suit their lives. And debt cancellation, in a way, is a more direct form of a wealth transfer than what we usually do. So that's why I think it's interesting. How concerned are you about the the impact on sort of higher ed and their ability to keep jacking up tuition? Um, and and I mean that that in a sense this is a significant wealth transfer to these institutions that don't necessarily have the best interests of their customers slash students well, at heart. Well, I mean, I, I, I would ultimately, just in the same way that I think vouchers would be a very good thing to have in the public school system for K through 12, I think a version of that would also make sense on a, a higher ed level, which means um, stop giving them all of these grants and taxpayer money and everything else. Um, and just say, look, we're going to put money in everyone's hands to decide what they want to do with it. They can pay it on tuition. They could pay it on some sort of vocational education. They can use it to, to start a business or pay down debt. Um, and universities, colleges, you have to compete, right? And if you offer a better product, a better education at a better price, you will attract more people who are sitting there with these dollars. Um, and if you don't, you won't. And I think right now what we do instead is we subsidize a completely failing system. Community college graduation rate last I checked was something like under 10%, right? So it's a completely failed system. And I think rather than perpetuating something that doesn't work but has some sort of political salience and therefore we keep doing it, um, I have no problem giving people – more resources to choose to go to college with, but make the universities have to compete for it. And if a lot of universities go out of business as a result, so be it, right? I don't know why they're any ultimately uh, more noble than any other for-profit business or any kind of business in general. 
Was this an issue that that lit up your your political strategist text group at all? Did anyone have strong? Not views really. I mean, I, th- I I think people were um, more skeptical about it than anything else because I think it is seen conventionally as a you know pure political either giveaway more broadly to get Biden's numbers up and Democrats' numbers up in advance of the midterms, or as hey you know we owe the left A B C D and E either because they were relatively helpful in the 2020 elections or because we just don't want to have to deal with all of their whining and moaning going forward. Um, and what I found interesting is sort of the reaction from the left and the game theory around it, which is some people seemed happy, but of course their default posture is not good enough, not good enough, nothing's ever good enough. And on one hand, you might think, okay, do they truly believe this? And if so, what the fuck is wrong with them? Um, they just got something bigger than you know almost any interest group ever gets. Uh, and so on one hand, um, they should probably be happy that they were able to have this kind of impact in the first place. On the other hand, maybe it is good game theory and good strategy that if you're always, always, always upset, then you're always going to get a little more than you would otherwise because a squeaky wheel does get the grease. And, you know, you will continue to have people in government who are worried about them and they will continue to try to find ways to appease them. And so maybe that is the smarter strategy. Now, I think it sucks to be a member of the far left and constantly feel like no matter what happens, um, it's not good enough and everything is a failure and everything is terrible because it's a shitty way to live. Um, but putting that aside, you know, maybe their strategy is, is the right one. If it is a strategy, I suspect it's more just sort of their own miserable personalities, but, um, you know, uh, I, I am curious to know whether this is sort of actual game theory by the left or just sort of whiny people whining. As an investor at, at Tusk Ventures, how many good education ideas have you seen? Almost none. Uh, I have never done an ed tech deal. I'm deeply skeptical of ed tech. Um, I think especially because when ed tech founders come to you, they say, look at the TAM. TAM means a total addressable market, which is how much money is spent in total on this industry. And therefore, if you capture X percentage of it, that's revenue that your country that your company ought to be generating as a result. Um, and it's always like, oh, between you know K through 12 and higher ed, it's over a trillion dollars. Like that's true, but that's mainly just GovTech, right? That's mainly just taxpayer funding. Um, that goes into education as opposed to military or healthcare or whatever else. Um, and then you're just a business that sells into government. You're a GovTech company or a, a public procurement-based company. And those are shitty businesses, right? It is, the sales cycle is incredibly long. The process is insanely political. The smallest school district in this country is just as bureaucratic and just as political as the biggest one in this country. And you put all that together and it, it's a shitty business. What hope is there then for a, a kind of like technological revolution that actually puts like the Harvards and the Yales of the world into a defensive position? Is it even conceivable? I, I don't know, because, you know, the the thesis pre-pandemic was, you know, MOOC, massive online something courses. I'm, I'm missing a, a, an O there somewhere. Um, and the <laughs> idea was, you know, anyone could effectively now on on their phone or their laptop get, you know, a version of the same education that Ivy League students are getting, and whether that's through programs offered by the schools or companies like Masterclass or whatever else, um, the challenge is, at least for K through 12, the pandemic disproved that completely, right? Zoom school for, you know, the vast, vast, vast majority of students was awful, right? I think almost every parent would tell you that. I think almost every kid would tell you that. And so, 
if the entire thesis was based on we will move education online and that's what will fix it. Uh, well, look, that concept made sense to me as well. Uh, and there are certainly hybrid models that maybe still could work. Um, overall, you know, COVID proved that to not be accurate. Doesn't, I mean, if the metaverse is anything, right, shouldn't it be a pretty decent way uh, to structure education? Yeah, it, sh it should. And look, maybe that's what the problem was. Maybe the challenge with Zoom school during the pandemic is the technology was good enough to, to usually assemble the, the students and the teacher um, and maybe share a screen, but not much more than that. Um, and if you're in a totally immersive environment where you really feel like you are with your friends, your classmates, the, the kids you hate, whatever, um, the teacher, everyone else, maybe that's a much better experience. So, so maybe it's just a question of the engagement was not strong enough uh, to make it work, but the underlying thesis is still correct. That, that, that could be true, and that is definitely, when you, when you look at the upsides and downsides of the potential for the metaverse, I think you know being able to sort of recreate a, a successful classroom setting is probably one of the biggest opportunities there. Um, but you know, unfortunately, at least the most um, realistic recent experiment we had was Zoom education through COVID, and, and I can tell you as a parent, it was certainly not successful. You know, it's funny. I remember your friend Scott Galloway had this big sort of theory right in the middle of the pandemic that the big tech companies were going to take over higher ed, you know, Amazon and Google, um, that this was a frontier that they were going to conquer. Because at the moment, it looked like, you know, right in the thick of the pandemic, uh, the big universities seemed very vulnerable, right? Because yeah. campuses were empty and like, it just seemed like, well, who's going to pay, you know, 50 grand to like, you know, take Zoom classes. And that turned out, people did pay 50 grand to like take zoom classes that like the very top universities only got stronger through the pandemic, which I, I think was unexpected. Um, unexpected. Well, I mean, it just gets, it gets back to the point we were discussing earlier about the student loans, which is, you know, we have a system where um, ultimately people do better off in this system than they have in any other economic or political system in the history of the world in terms of, you know, basic needs met in terms of infant mortality, in terms of literacy, in terms of living in extreme poverty, uh, life expectancy, things like that. But overall, there is still a massive disparity between what some people can earn in this economy and others. And if you're at the top end of that spectrum called the 1% or even the 5%, you know, you have the means to throw 50 grand at a problem for your kid's education. You tell yourself that's the most important thing you could spend the money on in the first place. Um, and you choose to do it. So, you know, any surge in high end spending on anything doesn't really surprise me. So as a political strategist, what's the work you've done on education that you consider kind of meaningful or important? Yeah, ch charter schools. So I, I spent uh, the first part of my kind of private sector career, building and running a lot of the campaigns in the education reform world around um, issues like expansion of charters, race to the top, uh, getting rid of last in, first out, addressing teacher tenure in different ways, school closing failing schools, things like that. Um, and in 2010, which is a million years ago now, but ran, I think, what's considered the first campaign uh, around charter schools that was run truly like a political campaign. And um, we passed a bill up in Albany over the objection of the teachers unions that added 125,000 more charter school seats in, in the state of New York, about a $2 billion a year 
um, net transfer from traditional public schools to, to charter schools, which in my opinion, not always, but oftentimes offers period education simply because they're not bound by all the same rules and obligations as traditional public schools, so they can do things differently and better. So um, I spent a while on that. However, that whole movement is dependent on the largesse of private sector donors, both to the schools themselves and then to the political advocacy around it. Um, and that has waned a lot in the last sort of seven or eight years. And why do you think that's true? Because is it because like in New York, you had the the government, the, I mean, in the city and, and the state go pretty sharply left? Is that part of it? I mean, I, th- I mean, that's that's part of it. But I think it's, it's more just the basic thesis of this podcast, which is every policy output is shaped by political input. And yes, politicians, even those on, on the left or at least the middle left, were willing to accept okay, uh, these hedge fund guys are really, really rich and they could be important long-term political supporters. And so I at least wanted to hear what they have to say about charter schools because it, it may be a, a better outcome for me than just sort of doing what the teachers union tells me to do. Um, however, the problem is individuals tend to be fickle, right? And you know they have this cause and they get into it and they put time and money into it and then they get into something else or their business takes a downturn and they have to focus on that instead or their life takes some big change and, and that takes up all of their, their focus and priority. Whereas the teachers unions, you know, in, in many ways in a corrupt way, but are just here day in, day out, year in, year out. And every year they're sending someone to your shitty little fundraiser and, and showing up with a max pack check and everything else. And that's reliable, right? And if you're a politician, you, you can count on the reliability of the teachers' unions, even if the stuff that they're then asking you to do, you know, is not in the best interest of the kids who you represent. Um, or it's the potential largesse of charter uh, school and ed reform funders and donors. But, you know, that may be there in any particular moment. It may not. And so I think ultimately um, the the supporters of ed reform just got distracted on other stuff and the reliability of it became seen as much less um, than that of the teachers unions. And that's why the political momentum shifted back into the, to the traditional form. Do you think there's any, I mean, I, I it, it seems in New York with these, you know, pretty substantial reduction in, um, in midtown business activity that there's, there's going to be a, a budget crisis coming. Uh, it may not be next year, may not be the year after, but the 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 business activity of New York is reduced by the pandemic pretty significantly, and um, there will be um, there will be the need to to cut the city budget rather significantly. Do you think something like that? First of all, I'm interested if you agree with that. I think you do, but 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 also, do you think we'll see? Um, a substantial reduction in education spending in New York City and a cut in the budget, or is it just no, like- no? I, I, so for one, the underlying point you made, yes, to totally agree with it, because even more important than that, the economy for a while was pretty strong, produced tax revenue, and now it's not. Um, the federal government, because of COVID, pumped trillions and trillions of new dollars into the system. A lot of that went to city and state government in one form or another. And so they're still bursting, boasting these massive surpluses. I think California had a 92 or $97 billion surplus this year, right? So um, so on, on one hand, 
they're flush right now. And, you know, occasionally you get a Mike Bloomberg who thinks about the future and says, hey, let's, let's hold a significant chunk of this money back for when things go take a downturn. But generally speaking, people just spend it, right? Because all they're looking to do is maximize their political benefit at any given moment. Um, and they're being lobbied left and right to put money into this and to that. By the way, including by people like me for, for school meals, right? School meals did very, very well during COVID. Federal government funded at a much greater rate. Um, and that's a program that, despite all of my government, often doesn't work uh, that I think is very effective. So, um, so, no. But then the question goes, okay, the downturn comes. Do they meaningfully cut education? No, because it, it's one of those issues that, one um, – at least in let's just talk about blue cities and states you know they are consistently worried about the power of a teachers union to put enough money into a primary to change the outcome of it number one in general election less so because it's unlikely the teachers union is actually republican um that's number one number two you know education is a funny issue right if you poll people and say what do you care most about it's always right up it's always some combination of crime schools and jobs right when you actually figure out, does anyone go into the ballot box on election day um, and, and make their decision primarily based on um, education policy and funding and everything else? No, they, they, they really seem not to. So it's one of those issues that seems more important politically than it may actually be. Um, but for as long as it's polling towards the, the top of the list, uh, politicians can be reluctant to cut it. And so they will cut other things, you know, whether it's, you know, quality of life or sanitation or other programs that, quite frankly, are, are also really important um, at a cutting schools because they think it has less political downside for them. Okay. So as a, we've, we've talked about your perspective on this as a, as a strategist, as an investor, you're also a philanthropist. When and where do you give money to educational causes? And what's the, what's the calculus? Pretty rarely, because there's a system that, like we said, is, is a trillion-dollar system of, of mainly taxpayer funding. We have an incredible, like our healthcare system, an incredibly expensive and yet generally fairly ineffective uh, public school system in this country. Um, and, you know, do I admire the people who put a lot of their money to build new charter schools to give poor kids more choice and a better education? Yeah, I do. Um, but ultimately, it does feel very much like a drop in the bucket. And so... Uh, of all the various causes where I can have an impact, as we discuss in this podcast a lot, you know, a couple million dollars of my money focused on changing hunger policy has helped unlock a billion and a half new dollars in government spending for hunger programs and help feed you know 12 million more people. Um, if I put the same thing into education, whether directly or politically, I think the ROI would be much, much smaller. So, so generally speaking, not only do I not invest in ed tech most of the time uh, or so far ever, um, I, I don't really engage in it philanthropically much either. So last week we talked about uh, the climate bill, now law, uh, the, the, as a major accomplishment of the Biden administration. We've, we've discussed many times the, the, the Dobbs abortion decision um, as a, you know, as a, as, as a, issue that, that the Democrats can capitalize on in the fall. And now we have student debt relief. Is there beginning to be a plausible narrative uh, that Democratic candidates can use and, and to effectively? Maybe. I mean, look, on one hand, we certainly saw, as we discussed last week with Chantel Smith, um, that there was you know at least one special election in New York where choice did seem to make a, a meaningful difference. We certainly saw that in the referendum in 
Kansas. Um, I think that you have, you know, do I think the climate change bill is going to result in meaningful new votes for Democrats? No, because it is, you know, such a long-term thing and no one's going to see any real benefit from it for a long time. And even the benefit may just be the avoidance of harm. You can't really notice. It's really hard to just prove a negative. So um, you're not going to see much there. The infrastructure bill, I think, if they had really, really driven it hard to say, hey, we're going to have tangible evidence of the work we're doing very quickly, that's one thing. But from what I can tell, they have not done that. Um, and, you know, gas prices are down uh, a little bit, and that's great. Um, but, you know, milk and bread and all kinds of other staples are, are not getting cheaper. And so, and we're going to have likely, you know, hurricane season sort of exacerbated by climate change. That could cause disruptions to the oil pipeline, the gas pipeline, to the price of home heating oil, um, and everything else, natural gas. So, you know, I, I think that uh, there are some positive signs for the Democrats. I think that we tend to, as a society and as a media, sort of overreact to everything and sort of say, oh, here's what it's all going to be right now. Um, do I think it will be less Republican? romp than it might have been otherwise. Yeah, I, I think Dobbs helps with that. I think that, um, you know, the student debt thing may be at the very margins helps with that. But fu- fundamentally, I'm not sure that the underlying results will be that different. I still think it's unlikely that the Democrats get the House. The Senate is much more up for grabs. But the reality is, you know, once you lose one of the two chambers, anything you do has to be a deal with the Republicans, of which at the moment, uh, I'm not sure that either party seems inclined to give anyone a deal because that's not the political incentives that they get when they run for election in their own primaries. And certainly with Trump sort of on the horizon, the near horizon, you know, starting in after the midterms, it seems really unlikely there'll be any deal making at all. No, I mean, I, I can't imagine anything passes between now and, and election day. I don't think anyone really thinks that because they have to do a continuing resolution in Washington on the budget itself, but that's just an annual activity. Uh, so you'll see a little bit of policy jockeying and that, and maybe some stuff will win or lose. But but by and large, no. And if you assume the Republicans take the House, which I still think is a reasonably safe assumption sitting here on August 29th, um, it probably means that there will either be no meaningful legislation or policy set for the next two plus years at least. Um, or if there is, it will all have to come out of the administration on the administrative executive order side of the ledger. Um, because, you know, other than maybe some bipartisan stuff like tech regulation, I just think it's going to be really hard to expect anything to happen uh, with a divided Congress. Okay, so we're coming into Labor Day. Summer's kind of over. What is your best recommendation based on your summer? If it could be a place to visit, a book to read, TV show, anything you did that... Sure. More than one, but, but think of one to start with. The best book I read was called Tomorrow, Tomorrow, Tomorrow. I think Gabriel, Gabrielle Zelkin was the name of the author. And okay. it was about these two young people starting in like the 1980s who uh, become kind of both video gaming nerds and programmers and kind of their relationship, a man and a woman or a boy and girl, then a man and a woman over time. And they build a company together and everything else. I think that was the best book. Uh, that I have read uh, this year so far. Um, look, Lyle and I went to Kenya. It is obviously not a trip that is accessible for 99% of people. Um, but at the same time, if you do have the opportunity to do it, it is a just once-in-a-lifetime experience to sort of be sitting there in a Jeep and you know, 15 elephants or 30 giraffe or 200 zebra or bison just walk right by you. It's like you really can't 
explain it in photographs or even in words. You can't articulate it. Um, you just have to. Uh, you, you just have to see it. Um, and I, I guess those are sort of the two best things. I'm sitting here. Yeah, you know, obviously the Mets have played well this summer, so I've spent a decent amount of time watching that. Um, there's no movie that I saw that really strikes me. Um, if there was a really great TV show that I watched, uh, again, nothing coming to mind that, that feels astounding. So, you know, but, but yeah, I mean, look, as always, this is one of the nice things about the world. Artists make art, right? And that could be uh, literature. It could be visual art. It could be, you know, TV and podcasts and movies or anything else. And, you know, the nature of the art changes over time. And sometimes we have spikes and, and valleys in quality, but overall, um, no matter how shitty everything else is, there are a certain subset of people in this world who feel compelled to make art, and they will do so in sort of any situation that they're in. Um, and some of it ends up being pretty good. Bradley, thank you. I'll see you the day after Labor Day. All right, you go. Thanks.